Welcome to the final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Omar Musa. The final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's first peoples. Omar Musa is a Malaysian-Australian author, poet, and hip-hop artist. His debut novel, Here Come the Dogs, was long-listed for the 2015 Miles Franklin Award. Omar celebrated for his slam poetry and spoken word. Today, he's joining us with a unique new collection. Killanova combines poetry and wood carving, allowing Omar to explore his heritage and the ongoing tension that exists within Australia and around the world between Indigenous peoples and colonialism. Join me as we discover Omar Musa's Kilanova. Omar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about it because it's still fresh, you know. The, the book's only been out about a week and a bit. That and is so it's awesome. really cool seeing people's responses to it. Look, it's it's this incredible combination of poetry and wood carving. And look, I want to start, you're, by, by any definition of the word, you're a triple threat, you know, you're an author, you're a, a slam poet, you're a singer, you're an actor, that's actually more than three. But in <laughs> Kilanova, in Kilanova, you're adding this visual artistic style of woodcut to your repertoire. What, what led you to the medium and this more visual form of expression? So a few years ago, I was back in Borneo, which is my homeland and where my father comes from. And I was traveling around um, trying to get my head straight. And I took this huge trip up the mighty Mahakam River from the east coast of Indonesian Borneo, a place called Samarinda. And it's this amazing, massive brown river that has been a a highway that's connected the people of the coastline to the peoples of the interior for thousands of years. They've traded up and down the river. And a friend had encouraged me to take this trip and sleep on the public ferry and just chat to people. But I was a bit scared because my Bahasa Indonesia is pretty broken. Like, it's okay, it's passable but it's broken. Uh, but I eventually mustered the courage, did it. And it was just a really transformative trip. I went up the river. I saw all sorts of amazing things like beautiful, ancient longhouses, the beams of which were carved with animal spirits. And, and I'm chatted to local people. I even saw skulls up in the roofs of the longhouses from the headhunting days, you know? Mm. And, uh, but I also saw a lot of environmental destruction. I saw open cut mines, um, spitting the contents of the earth onto barges. I saw, logs coming down the river, you know, cut down from primary rainforest, which is obviously really tragic because it's ruining, ruining Borneo, you know, this like a lot of um, corrupt logging practice. And, um, and so I saw all these contradictions and, and I kind of realized that I needed a new expression with which, or a new, a new creative expression, you know, and I didn't know what that was going to be. But um, a few weeks later, I was back in Malaysian Borneo visiting my dad and I attended a woodcut workshop run by a local activist and punk, punk rocker called Eric Lost Control. And uh, he taught me how to carve designs into wood, into a block of wood, roll it with ink, and then press it to paper or cloth by stamping on it with our feet, which is quite a Southeast Asian way of doing it because uh, it gives the, gives the artwork, artwork extra samangat, they say, which means extra spirit. 
So yeah, that started this crazy unexpected adventure of, of making woodcut prints and then combining it with poetry. And, and this book, Killing Over, is the, is the result of that, that new adventure. This is the bit where radio is going to let us down, but it is such an incredible visual experience um, just going through the book. Can you give us any sense of, of sort of the iconography and the style that you, you use in your woodcut? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm heavily, heavily influenced by the Borneo woodcut style, which is all punk rockers and environmental activists who make protest posters that use a lot of, um, uh, well, a combination of slogans and then um, images of of traditional life, um, nature, uh, resistance, um, sometimes with a kind of comedic element, um, but they... they are also influenced by the Indonesian collective Taring Putty, who do a lot of activist stuff around anti-corruption and everything. So I guess the style looks like protest posters, DIY punk rock promo posters, but I've combined that with kind of a graphic novel element. And then also, uh, instead of the slogans, I'll often use poetry um, and sort of little scraps of narrative and history. Um and I guess my iconography is not a traditional one. You know, I, I don't use old traditional Bornean forms of, um, you, you know, motifs like floral motifs or animal mm. spirits or anything like that. I use stuff from the modern day. And because I was born and raised here and of a certain generation, I use a lot of emojis and emoticons and stuff from, um, from pop culture, you know. And, um, and then I guess I'm also influenced by people like my friends Jason Fu and Abdul Abdullah, Asian-Australian artists. Um, and, yeah, that's how I've come up with, with sort of my own style, I guess. It's, it's basically by pilfering <laughs> from other people. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that all good art? <laughs> I'd say so. I'd say so. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be seen to be believed. So I'm, I'm going to maybe leave a little bit of the visual there and just say to people, chuck it on a gift-giving list because Killanova is, is the full package. Um, before, look, I want to get stuck into the poetry. I want to talk a little bit about that. But to give people a taste, is there a poem that you might be able to share with us to, to give sure. us an intro to the collection? This is a um, actually a really short one, and I've only just memorized it like yesterday. So hopefully I'll be able to get it in the first go. This is called The Living and the Dead. Necromancy is a hard game especially when the person you're communicating with isn't dead yet. A fraught art, like a baptism in a smokehouse, a wedding in a meth lab, chiseling apart your skeleton to make dice of bone or using a border as a skip rope. She left a crescent moon on my shoulder, but no one prayed beneath it. He told me that COVID was punishment for our collective sins but I left him on red through the elliptical lens of a dewdrop. We all look about the same, the living and the dead. That's there you go. That's a incredible. Dark little apocalyptic poem for you. <laughs> that I remember that poem from the collection and it feels like there's something about that poem that speaks to the difficulty, even, even when we share a language of, of actually communicating. Um, and there's so much. Whenever I get to talk poetry, I feel like there's so much to explore in the realm of language and the way that we create through words. So I barely know where to go right now. But I wanted to, 
I wanted to kind of bring up that difficulty communicating. And as I typed out my notes, one thing that kept happening to me was autocorrect would try and try and do things to the words that I was writing. I, for instance, your name, uh, Musa, Omar Musa, kept, it kept wanting to, you know, autocorrect Musa to miss. And that, that kind of felt like just another example of, um, <laughs> I guess, sort of like destruction of language by algorithm. I've pulled a line out from one of the poems, um, that I only, I only refound this morning. It's from Impossibility, where you say, Bonsai a mind long enough, and after a while it prunes itself. Can you talk yeah. about the ways that, that language can be, can be cut down, but also the way you're expanding um, expression through your work? So this poem was influenced by the Malaysian activist Hishamuddin Rice, who says that uh, the Malay mind has been censored and bonsai for so long that now people censor themselves and cut themselves off and, and the destructive effect that has on one's sense of freedom and selfhood. And so through this poem, Impossibility, I was trying to show um, visually how you censor yourself as a writer um, constantly and the, the anxiety that goes into the creation of work and how in some ways um, it can be it's so, it's so limiting because, um, of course, we want to fight for freedom of speech, but then freedom of speech in a place like Australia can sometimes lead to hate speech. So there need to be limits of some sort, but where do you put those, where do you put those limits on yourself? And so you start to reduce and reduce the things that you can say, but does that have an effect on your mind as well? Mm. You know, and I'm, I find that interesting and the impossibility of truly expressing what I feel and what I mean is an anxiety that comes out in the book again and again. And so I've decided to leave those redactions in, leave bits struck out in the book. Um, and, and I end the book even by saying um, that behind every poem, there is an invisible poem. Behind every uh, map, there is an invisible map and behind you, there is an invisible you. The search for that is an impossibility, but it's an imperative. And that tension is what lies over the whole book is that we are searching for what lies behind or beneath things. And it's almost impossible to find, but the search for it is where the good art lies. Can I pull on that thread just a little bit more? Because I was interested in what you're saying about self-censorship and I wondered, and the way it limits thought, and I wondered, like, do we, do we even celebrate maybe in Australia a culture of, you know, self-censorship to the point of almost invisibility with this? You know, we, uh, we lionise the quiet Australian, so to speak, and that's, you know, meant to be the mainstream person who doesn't rock the boat. But, you know, realistically, you know, nothing is going to happen until we start talking and we start listening. Like, listening is also imperative. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I think that's so true. Sometimes you have to know when to shut up and listen and then there's a tension that exists there as well because you've also got to know when to speak up and that's, and that's really difficult and also when to assert your selfhood. And for instance, I, I agree with what you say because you know, as, a, as a person of colour and a Muslim uh, Australian, Asian Australian, oftentimes people... They, they want to accept you in the mainstream, but only if you play a certain role. And usually that role is someone who's humble, uh, stays in a box and knows their place and shuts the hell up. 
And so sometimes it can really stick in the craw of people when you stand up and say something that's a bit outside of the box or breaks the stereotype and it makes them really, really uncomfortable. And, um, and that's why I always saw Muhammad Ali as my hero growing up because he said, I am the greatest, I am the prettiest, I will not be what you want me to be and I will be loud and proud and exuberant and, and break that mold of the quiet, submissive person you want me to be. And, um, and so, yeah, that's why actually circling back to the, to the original question, that's why I think it's really important to come up with new ways with which to express ourselves um, linguistically, but maybe just artistically in general. And that's what I've tried to do with a book like this, because we live in a country where public language is so, so degraded. Like if you, again, I'm talking about attention. We're trapped in between the the sledgehammer of jingoism um, in public life with stuff like stop the boats and axe attacks and all that sort Mm. of bullshit. We're trapped between that and then the most vague, obfuscating, nebulous type of language of like um, legalese, or bureaucratic language that you don't understand where, you know, people's selfhood can be reduced to a a label such as irregular maritime arrivals, you know, by the powers that be, which totally dehumanizes someone. And so to bring that humanity back, even though poetry is such an obscure genre really, and it doesn't sell much, most people don't, don't know much about poetry in Australia or care about it. Um, I do think it has a bit of a vital role for pushing at the edges of the possibilities of what language might be and how it can express our um, humanity. Poetry just exists in this almost strange liminal zone where, as you say, yeah, it doesn't sell amazingly. And, you know, if you, if you love poetry, poets, I mean, uh, Poets, you know, exist on pedestals, I would say. But for most people, you know, they're, they're hidden. But it's yeah. everywhere. It's in the music we listen to. It's in, unfortunately, the advertising. And the th- yeah. you, you, every one of the slogans you were just talking about that come out of governments uh, always seem to be reduced to three words. And there is a, sort of a, a, a dark poetry to them, almost like a haiku type sense. Yeah. I loved the, um, the poem Un-Australian where you – you actually you, you parody anodyne Australian cultural icons and suggest that you know until we get over this cultural amnesia, until we get away from this reticence to look at the past squarely in the eye, we we need to you know we might as well name ourselves un Australia because we we can't reconcile ourselves. Like where's the power? What's the power of that? That calling out and that naming of things. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the book I've realised I use that what is it is it a, a prefix un is that what it is a pre- yeah that. that'd be a prefix yeah I, yeah i use i use that a lot in the book unmade un-australia and it's a it's a process of unpackaging that's mm. what it's doing um even just by using it is unpacking uh or unpackaging no what's the term unpacking unpacking, unpacking yeah it's unpacking and unpicking mythologies that we have and we have so many mythologies um, around Australia that I think are actually really, uh, really destructive, you know, around mm. Australian masculinity, around um, a sense of Australia's um, isolation 
you know, in the middle of the ocean as this kind of colonial outpost. Um, mythologies about the the diggers, you know, where essentially it's this, um, what's the word? It, it, it's kind of revisionist history about our hawkishness or our place in the world as expressed through war um, and where, you know, people basically put words in the mouths of dead men to express modern agendas, <laughs> you know. Um, and and so in something like Un-Australia, it's just a, a very um, sharp, acerbic um, poem that's dripping with sarcasm, trying to, mm. uh, trying to question some of these sacred cows and also um, kick some of these freedom of speech or so-called freedom of speech warriors squarely in the nuts, you know, when they're always crowing on about freedom of speech. But when someone like Yasmin Abdul-Majid, um, you know, speaks freely in public, she's suddenly demonized and basically kicked out of the country because she's saying something they don't agree with, you know, and it's like, okay, so you're fighting freedom for freedom of speech, but when it's something you don't agree with or someone who has a bin in their middle name, all of a sudden you don't like it so much. Mm. And so it was just me kind of um, reacting to that, that poem. And it, it actually doesn't really uh, encapsulate the aesthetic vibe of the, of the book very much. That's the oldest poem by a mile, and it represents a lot more of the, the spoken wordy me uh, than the stuff in the book, which I think is a bit more kind of, um, I don't know, it's a bit more formal in a way. Mm. Um, yeah. The, the poetry I, in the book. I think I picked up on it. I mentioned as we were getting started that I had been listening to um, some of your your slam poetry and some of your uh, some of your music in prepping, and it, it I guess it resonated with that stuff that I was listening to. I like what you said there about unpacking and unpicking because it it also reminds us that the things we're talking about are things that are are constructed. You know these these mythologies, these histories are are things that were woven. They're things that were packed, and and they they need to be undone when we're be, kind of being told by institutions that they are they are forever and immutable. But that's that's not it. We've two we're 250 years of stolen history. That's yeah. that's the reality. Hey, Omar, I know I'm conscious that you told me you had someone waiting on you. Have you got time for like another question? Or Yeah, for sure. For awesome. sure. I think we've had a really good yarn so far. I'm keen. Oh, yeah. awesome. Cool. I've got I've got a few others just that I've picked from. And I want to, as you mentioned, un-Australian doesn't um, you know necessarily resonate with everything else that's in the collection. We were talking, though, about language and listening, and there's an incredible one of your illustrations, one of your woodcuts, and it's this gorgeous turtle, and the motif is turtles have prettier words for the ocean than poets do, and it just jumped out at me as this idea of, of how we communicate and how, how language doesn't have to be you know, writ in words and about listening to nature. It sort of it sort of sounded like you're in, you're acknowledging this inherent limitation of your poetry of any language to all of all human speech and opening ourselves up. Like, how where did that come to you? I'm I'm guessing this sound, this came from the travels that you were talking about earlier. Well, I've always loved nature um, in in a pretty vague way, though. I mean, I, you know, it's sort of in the way that like someone just might say, "Oh yeah, I love flowers. I love trees." You know, but then traveling through the jungle and seeing the preciousness of, of primary rainforest, but how, how rare it is and how, how it's vanishing. And then traveling to the East Coast and working on a, 
uh, turtle sanctuary just very briefly and seeing, you know, a coral reef fish bomb to pieces, but slowly growing back with the help of, of some people through an NGO who were rebuilding the reef and, and the coral growing over it and turtles returning to it. I saw not just the destruction of Borneo and the, nat- the natural world, but also the possibilities for regeneration, which I obviously then extend to be something like a, a motif of personal regeneration as well. But writ large in the natural world, I take a lot of inspiration from the resilience of nature, but there's also a deep sense of melancholy that I've got um, for how it's being destroyed and, and um, how, yeah, how we can lose it so easily and are losing it. Um, but it wasn't just Borneo that influenced it. When, when I got back to Australia, actually last year, I, I took a year off writing and performing, which wasn't too hard because of the plague. <laughs> and, um, and I actually went back to TAFE and I studied horticulture. And so, um, yeah, I, I realized exactly as you say that there are limitations to human language and human speech and we can never replicate the beautiful eloquence of nature and the way that the natural world articulates itself. And I tried to take inspiration from that in a way, but also acknowledge it in a kind of tongue in cheek way um, that, you know, I, I may be one of the greatest poets of this nation, (laughs) but I got nothing on a turtle swimming slowly through the reef in Borneo. That is a far more beautiful and ethereal articulation of the essence of life than I could ever muster. And it comes back to that idea of listening because you not only have to cultivate a different, um, I guess, language for that, you have to cultivate a different way of observing and listening to take that in because, you know, you can I, we can Google turtle swimming right now. We're going to find a video of it, but that doesn't mean we're going to see what you saw and we're going to be able to evoke it and understand it in the same way. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, I think um, that kind of mystery is a beautiful thing that we need to hold on to, uh, cherish, and also somehow try to express in our words. Again, it's an impossibility. But that word mystery, I thought of it a lot when I was creating this collection because I've said this a couple of times in interviews, but and it's sort of showing how the sausage is made a tiny bit, but <laughs> I, um, I had... Uh, a quote by the great American poet Elizabeth Bishop pinned above my writing desk while I was making this. And I I read in an interview that Elizabeth Bishop aspired for three things in her poetry. She aspired for spontaneity, accuracy, and mystery. And I think it's just the most incredible triangulation I've ever heard because I've often leaned mostly towards the spontaneity Mm. where it's like, this kind of elemental flow of words coming out of me that expresses, you know, anger, love, desperation, fear, whatever it is, right? Very visceral. Um, and, and I think that's why some people have been drawn to my poetry. But then accuracy speaks to form. It speaks to sculpting those words. So it's not just, you know, brain vomit. It's something sculpted, Um, carefully and it's about craft but then mystery mystery speaks of something ecstatic and sublime something leaning towards religiosity you know or some type of godly incandescence 
And, and I really like that kind of balance. And that's what I was aspiring to, um, in the book. Um, but, uh, I don't know if I got there, but I was trying to, trying to make something that was accessible, but had a lot of layers Mm. and could operate on many different levels. Do you ever in your work or in your performance have to think about the the place where you are and and how you exist with the audience and I'm thinking about like I've you know heard you speak and heard your your poetry and you talk about your your background coming from a, a suburb um, Queenbian where you know it, it it had a reputation and it had um, this this sense of being outside uh, kind of a, a mainstream vision of Australia and and knowing that there are audiences out there that might not be ready to hear or want to hear those things, is there like, is, do you also have to add fearlessness to, I guess, those elements that you were just talking about? Oh, for sure. There's an element of bravery, um, I think, that has to be a part of putting pen to page or speaking into a microphone. I mean, I don't want to overplay it or lionize it too much because, I mean, look, I'm just an Australian poet um, chucking his thoughts out there every now and then. It's nothing compared to, say, my friend in Ethiopia who just contacted me recently and said he'd walked 400 kilometres across the country to escape warfare or another family friend who just escaped Kabul. You know, I mean, it's not bravery in those terms, but relatively, yes, there's an element of, um, of risk that has to be a part of what you do. Um, taking risks emotionally and intellectually and challenging yourself, but also challenging an audience who perhaps might not be ready um, or think they're not ready to hear what you have to say. Um, but that's how we achieve breakthroughs uh, is by taking those risks. And, um, and I mean, this country, as, as you've mentioned, collectively, I think we're in need of a hell of a lot of breakthroughs coming to terms with our past so that we can move forward into the future um, and as a part of the region. Um, but I also mean that, I mean that personally. Um, you, you've, you've got to um, sometimes risk it all uh, in order to have creative breakthroughs. And, and that's what I've tried to do with this. I mean, God damn, man, like I'm not a visual artist, you know, like <laughs> three and a half years ago, I never thought I'd be putting out a book of art um, and the risks are huge. You could look like a fool. You could be the la- you could be a laughing stock. You know, oh. um, I don't know. Maybe I am. I try nah. not to. I don't. Re- I don't read reviews. But <laughs> <laughs> now nah, you are. You are a visual artist. Now you've got to own it. This is this is such a collection. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pop it out there again. It has to be seen to be believed. Chuck it on a gift giving list, dear listener. I mean, I want to I want to even hit you up with one more. We're talking about this this idea of communicating and listening and common common finding commonality. I've caught you. You're in a cafe. Food food is everywhere in your work. In the in the poem Hungry Gods, you say the knowing is in the eating. Slurp. Yeah, yeah. I felt that impact, that importance of food through all your work. But I wondered, like, because food can help us process, it can help us share, it can help us reconcile culture. But it can. I feel like it can also create barriers and I'm thinking particularly in Sydney like Sydney has this kind of culture of food tourism where certain areas might only ever be visited for you know to kind of this let's let's put square quotes square quotes around the idea of authentic cuisine like what's what's your experience and how how does it influence your work that sort of idea oh, of food? Man, that's that's a really cool cool question yeah I mean food goes through everything 
mostly just because I'm a gluttonous bastard who <laughs> who loves a good laksa or a rendang. Um, but also because that was the way that I connected with my culture growing up, you know. I mean, through the language, because um, obviously my dad's from Borneo, but my mum is white Australian, but she speaks fluent Bahasa, Indonesia and Malaysia. So my parents encouraged me to speak Malay growing up. But it was food that actually um, was, uh, enabled me to connect with Malaysia. And growing up in the 80s in Queanbeyan, we had to go into Canberra. There were only two Asian supermarkets at the time. And so it was a real treat to get some charquetiao or even like lemongrass. You couldn't just buy it in Queenie and Woolies. Um, and, and so that was a way I stayed connected. Um, and it felt like I was ingesting history and ingesting culture, uh, not just kind of sustenance. But as I thought more about it and have returned to Malaysia and Borneo and, and thought, for instance, about the fishing industry, um, I realized that we also ingest complicity and exploitation in a place like Southeast Asia, where there are people basically enslaved to work in the fishing industry or stateless people being exploited for their labor in the, um, you know, in the islands between Borneo and the Southern Philippines. And so suddenly something as delicious as sambal prawns or alaksa makes us complicit in a very uncomfortable system of exploitation. And so I wanted to show that complication in this book because otherwise I feel like it would just be simple and reductive and rose-tinted, you know. Um, and so, so celebrate the food while also showing the shadows of it. It feels like this, this is, and, you know, we could probably do a, a whole conversation just on food. It, it is such a fraught battleground because it also, it makes me think, like, there is such a space to connect over food. Like, I mean, forget whatever the cuisine is, just meeting and and talking over food is incredibly powerful. But then, yeah. you know, I talked about, um, like, food tourism. And, you know, we have a... We, we have in our country, you know, a prime minister who, who cooks a curry and, and calls himself authentic. And there is a sense that for some people you can just, you can eat the food and, and that's all you need to experience. Um, it it oh, feels yeah. really fraught. Oh, totally, dude. Like I, I always get really annoyed when people make a case for multiculturalism and it basically, the argument is, oh, if we didn't have all these people here, we wouldn't have butter chicken <laughs> like you know it's just like well is that really a nuanced argument for multiculturalism mm. but um but yeah i mean there's so many layers beneath the surface of things and that's pretty much what this whole book is about and and something like the poem nutmeg where i talk about sprinkling a little bit of nutmeg on a cake and then realizing that the history of nutmeg is one of colonization violence and the massacre of people in Eastern Indonesia so that the Dutch could control the nutmeg trade. Mm. You know, suddenly it takes something as simple as putting a little delicious garnish on a, on a, on a dessert um, becomes filled with historical resonance and complication. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, again, I guess it's trying to see the invisible poem mm. behind the poem or the invisible map behind the map. And, and I mean, if we think about the time and the season, you know, you've talked about Nutmeg. Killanova is now officially a Christmas book, so everyone has to buy a copy every year now. <laughs> um, 
There we go. Omar, you've been you've been so generous talking about your poetry, and I feel like there's so much more we can cover. I'm also I'm also very conscious um, of your time. Is there anything like? Are there any areas of the book that we haven't touched on that you'd like to kind of shout out? Oh man, I mean, look, the, uh, this book, Killanova. I mean, that's a word I invented because I misheard the real world, the real word mm. Kilonova, which is K-I-L-O, um, a cataclysmic cosmic event where two neutron stars combine and, and create an explosion so massive that it sends ripples through space and time that, that wash up on our shores today, you know, unexpectedly. Mm. Um, but they are proof that the universe is expanding. Um, and so this book... I wanted it also to be a supernova, almost like a supernova of my ideas, my creativity, um, my talent, and claim that, not be ashamed of it. You know, mm. it's exuberant, it's colorful, the mistakes are celebrated, and there are all sorts of ideas in there. So, yeah, there's so many things we haven't touched on, but it's, it's food, it's family history, it's my relationship with my grandma, it's bushfires in Australia, it's addiction it's recovery it's heartbreak uh it's friendship you know like there's so many different things i explore and i allowed my imagination to run completely riot in this book uh and and not be restrained and so i don't know i'm just really stoked that you would look at it so closely that you would respond to it so closely and i hope that other people do as well and and i really appreciate your generosity in having me on Thank you, Omar. And look, I'm so glad you brought up the title because I'd, I'd skipped over my question. And I also, I kind of love if I can, if I can drop in here. I love that the the book is kind of the the creativity from the explosion of your own, you know, sort of internal Kilanova. And I also read that Kilanovas can also create black holes. So it's kind of like there's the challenge. This this incredible stardust you're throwing out into the world can be accepted and created. Or, you know, if we ignore it, maybe there's a black hole waiting for us. Well, there we go. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I was thinking more about how 90% of the world's gold is created in a cataclysmic explosion that happens 130 million years ago. Uh, is, is that saying that we need destruction for regeneration? Maybe it is, um, even though some of these dark things that happen to us, we preferred they might not have. But I didn't know that they also create black holes. So, yeah, that complicates things further. No, Maybe that, can, there's the challenge. The, there's the challenge. The black hole is is in potentia in your audience. <laughs> Omar Musa is an incredible author, poet. He's a hip-hop artist. His new collection, Killanova, includes all of that and more with his incredible artwork. Um, Omar, thank you so much for appearing on, on the show today. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And, what a, yeah, you've given us such a close reading. That, that means a lot. I'm really grateful. That's it for this great conversation with Omar Musa. Omar's new collection is Killanova. It's out now from Penguin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app wherever you get the podcast. It will, you'll have a new great conversation every week, sometimes even a bonus. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now. <laughs>